Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher here at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to 3 John. 2nd and 3rd John are the shortest documents in the entire New Testament. They are both about the same length as each other, possibly because the same scribe wrote them both, each on a single page of paper. Some scholars even suggest that these letters were written on the same day. Richard Lenski, for example, says here, The two letters were probably written on the same day and were sent to the same place, the second to the congregation, the third one to one of its members, closed quote. F.F. Bruce envisions a slightly more extended timeline. He agrees that the two letters were sent to the same church, but he doesn't think they were written on the same day. He thinks that the messenger who delivered 2 John was blocked or rebuffed in some way by this person we will meet called Diotrephes. He says concerning 2 John, The letter failed of its intended effect because Diotrephes, a dominant personality in that church, forbade his brethren to comply with the elder's request, closed quote. So then, according to Bruce's understanding of the timeline, the Apostle John then writes 3 John to Gaius, another leader in the same church, so as to ensure that this congregation receives the original instruction contained in the circular letter, 1 John, and the reinforcement contained in 2 John. Thus, this letter, 3 John, is the Apostle John doing an end around this difficult and dysfunctional person named Diotrephes. So that's what's going on here, or our best construction of what's going on here. Whether it all happened on the same day or over the course of a couple of weeks hardly matters. The point is that we are basically reading the narrative minutes of a particularly nasty church conflict. And that's important for us to understand. Such things happen, and these letters have been preserved because they demonstrate wise and persistent Christian leadership in a time of theological crisis. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. The elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. I mentioned in the episode on 2 John that there are some interesting deviations in that letter from standard epistolary form, which, it appears, were quite intentional. Well, here John returns to standard epistolary form. This is how letters were supposed to begin. I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health. Go back and Read the first couple of verses of 2 John to notice the deviation from this normal approach and style. Verse 3, For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Here again, we notice John's fatherly concern for all the members of his various churches. He sounds like every Christian dad I know when he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I hear that as a dad. I feel that. 
Colin Cruz says helpfully here. In all three letters of John, the author's joy is said to be complete when the readers maintain fellowship with him and walk in the truth, closed quote. So this is John's heart. This is his main concern. He wants to see his people walking faithfully down the path that leads to eternal life. There's nothing good for you out there in the dark, my children. There is nothing down that road but heartache, loss, and ruin. So stay the course. Remain in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. That's what John is saying. Verse 5, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. This is the main section of new content in 3 John. The apostle is saying here basically the mere opposite of what he said in 2 John. In that cover letter in verses 10 to 11, he said, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Close quote. So John had wanted to warn this church about the danger of giving hospitality to false teachers. But as I said, it appears as if that council was blocked by diatrophies. It never got to the church as a whole. It seems that the messenger bringing the letters was rebuffed by the church. But he apparently found welcome in the home of a member of the church, Gaius. And now the report of that has come back to John. You did well, Gaius. It is important for Christian leaders and churches to give hospitality to faithful and reliable gospel messengers. Now, stop and hear that. Part of how we advance the gospel mission is by supporting gospel teachers. John says, we do this that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So you advance the kingdom by supporting faithful teachers. And of course, the converse is true. You hinder the advance of the kingdom by supporting unfaithful teachers. So it matters who you are supporting. It matters who you are paying as your pastor. It matters who you are supporting as a gospel worker overseas. It matters whose books you are buying and whose conferences you are attending and whose podcasts you are listening to. All of that matters because by means of that, we become fellow workers with these teachers for good or ill. John provides the encouragement here to go along with the warning he gave in 2 John verse 11, whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So if you have commerce with unfaithful teachers, John says, you are taking part in their wicked works. If you have commerce with faithful teachers, that's the flip side, you take part in their righteous works work. So what you do matters. And so you need to know the standard for faithful discernment. And apparently, Gaius does. He knew who to accept, and he knew whose authority in the church ultimately matters. We get into that at verse 9. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing 
talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. All right, so who is this Diotrephes character? Our best reconstruction here is that Diotrephes was one of the local leaders in this church. The earliest pattern seems to have been that churches were ruled by a plurality of elders. And of course, at this point in the story of the history of the church, we're in that transition from the foundational leaders, the, the prophets and apostles, where they were passing off the scene. As I mentioned, John is the last living apostle at this point. And so replacing those is not another generation of apostles and prophets, but rather a plurality of elders. That seems to have been the pattern. Diotrephes was almost certainly one of those elders, but it appears that he had a disproportionate amount of influence in this particular church. He was able to block messengers sent by the Apostle John, and he was able to put out members who attempted to receive those messengers. And that would seem to suggest that the church was meeting in his house, and that created a leadership challenge that the Apostle John had to deal with. And he says that he will. He fully intends to call out Diotrephes publicly when next he visits, should the Lord will for that to happen. Now, as I said, this is John doing an end around, and he feels completely justified in so doing. The rule in John's churches was pretty straightforward. If you didn't recognize his authority as an apostle, then you forfeited your voice and your authority in the local congregation. By the way, the Apostle Paul did the exact same rule. He said in 1 Corinthians 14, 37 to 38, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized, close quote. So it is the authority of the apostles that is ultimately definitive in the church. That's how you know who the faithful teachers and leaders are. It's got nothing to do with charisma, or talent, or appeal, or following, or appearance, none of that matters. What matters is whether they are fully, gladly, and entirely in submission to the authority of Christ's apostles. Those are the leaders you want to have commerce with. Theirs is the ministry you want to invest in. Verse 11, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So here we get the flip side of John's approach to this crisis. On the one hand, he is clearly bypassing and isolating this unhelpful leader named Diotrephes. And on the other hand, he is clearly foregrounding and commending this person named Demetrius. Most scholars assume that Demetrius is the messenger who delivered 3 John. In essence, John is saying here, this is the sort of person you should be looking to as an example of a faithful, godly Christian leader. This is the sort of person you should be supporting as a congregation. And his message is the sort of message you should be hearing as a congregation. Now, the middle bit in verse 12 is difficult to make sense of. What does it mean that Demetrius has received a good testimony from the truth itself? Some say that it simply means that his deeds tell the truth about who he is. 
And that's certainly possible. After all, Jesus did say, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Closed quote, Matthew 7, 15 to 16. So a teacher's life and ministry should, over time, tell you the truth about who they are and where they come from. So that could be it. But some scholars think it means, actually, that Jesus himself, who is, of course, the truth, testifies on Demetrius' behalf. Jesus did say, I am the way and the truth and the life, John 14, verse 6. And it appears that that became somewhat of a common way in the early church to refer to Jesus. The early church historian Eusebius, for example, records Papias, who many historians believe was the scribe who wrote 1 John, but that's another story. He records Papias using almost the exact same phrase. Eusebius has Papias referring to his interactions with the apostles and their writings, saying that they were given to faith by the Lord and proceeding from the truth himself, closed quote. Exact same phrase, almost the exact same phrase. So clearly in that instance, that phrase refers to Jesus in a personal sense. So that could be it as well. But either way, the point is the same. Jesus has been testifying to the trustworthiness of Demetrius by blessing his ministry and causing it to bear fruit. And therefore, you, Gaius, need to give him your support. And you need to make sure that his voice is being heard in the church. Verse 13. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. That is, of course, almost exactly the same ending that we find at the conclusion of 2 John, which some see as further evidence that these letters were likely written on the same day. Now, whether it proves that or not, I do not know. What we can say for sure is that it gives evidence of urgency. These letters were written hastily, saying what was urgent and immediately necessary with further direction and follow-up to be given in person as soon as time and providence permit. Verse 15. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. This intimate and gracious greeting could just be a personal flourish, or it could be a subtle way of adding a further layer of authority to everything John has said thus far. Stephen Smalley, for example, says here, By adding their salutations to the writers, the friends were associating themselves with the presbyter's sentiments, as well as adding their authority to his requests, close quote. And that could be. What is beyond any doubt is that there is a fraternity and a family that is formed around the apostolic gospel. Those who go out from us show that they all are not of us, but those who remain behind and those who continue faithfully upon the old, old gospel path do, in fact, grow into a fellowship that is stronger even than the bonds of blood and natural paternity. Staying together, under pressure from the culture and through the trauma of schism and apostasy, forges a connection and a kinship that is like no other this side of death. These are John's children. These are his friends. These are the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ through persevering faith. Thanks be to God. 
Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on our Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into your search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right-hand corner. Once again, that's intotheword.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.